Jesus in the Old Testament. That's what Messianic prophecies are all about, right? But many of us are confused. Hey, no need to be intimidated. Instead, join the conversation that helps you find Jesus in the Old Testament. That's coming up in just a few minutes. Hey, welcome to The Land and the Book, an up-close look at all God is doing in the Middle East. I'm John Geiger, connecting with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, who is right now in Israel. Hey, Charlie, where have we reached you and your group today? Uh, we are on the Golan Heights, uh, just north of the Sea of Galilee, you know, at the base of Mount Hermon. A beautiful day, a beautiful time to be here, and uh, it's always fun talking to you, though, John, even when I'm in Israel. Yeah, well, it's great to connect with you. All right, let's uh, take a look at our current events for the week. Two weeks ago, I remember reading that U.S.-Israel relations experienced a temporary crisis when the U.S. House cut funding to resupply Israel's Iron Dome missile defense system. The crisis was quickly resolved, though, when a separate funding bill was introduced. What caused the problem, and why was it such a concern in Israel? Well, what initially caused the problem is the way our government functions. Uh, Democratic Party leaders in the House of Representatives were pushing a bill to increase the debt ceiling to keep the government funded through the year. Uh, Speaker of the House Pelosi initially added this funding for the Iron Dome system to entice Republicans to support the bill, but uh, no Republicans did. And then the progressives within the Democratic Party called for cutting the aid to Israel and threatened to vote against the bill unless it was removed. The Democratic majority is razor thin, and their votes could have cost the funding bill to be defeated. So Pelosi pulled the funding for Israel, and the bill passed along party lines. Now, a separate Iron Dome funding bill was then submitted, and it passed the House by an overwhelming majority of both Republicans and Democrats. So in one sense, it was just an exercise in party politics between Republicans and Democrats in the House and between the two factions within the Democratic Party. But it did create major concerns in Israel, even though the current government there tried to downplay the conflict. Uh, the money was to go toward restocking the interceptor missiles used in the Iron Dome system, uh, which stops rockets from being fired into Israel by Hamas and potentially stopping the rockets from Hezbollah should a conflict uh, arise with them. Now, many in Israel were concerned by the anti-Israel rhetoric of the so-called squad and other members of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party who were holding Israel's security hostage. Now, what it signaled to them was that our rhetoric of being rock solid in our support for Israel isn't as solid as it once was. Hmm. Israel was especially concerned because the Iron Dome system is a defensive weapon. It's designed to protect civilians from terrorist attacks. To allow the supply of missiles to be depleted could encourage terrorist groups to launch more attacks. The rise of the progressive wing within the Democratic Party is causing some in Israel to question if they can depend on the U.S. for other funding. Now, here's the bottom line. In May, Hamas fired 1,500 rockets at civilian neighborhoods in Israel. The Iron Dome system shot down more than 1,400 of them, saving countless lives. Uh, we promised Israel that uh, we would supply them with the funds for the interceptors in exchange for them sharing their technological know-how about the system with us. They complied, and then we signaled, at least temporarily, we might not hold up our end of the bargain. You know, it's a time when the U.S. needs to stand behind its commitments to Israel for their sake and for ours. I'm glad the second bill passed as it did, but uh, we still need to remember Genesis 12:3. I'll bless those who bless you, and those who curse you, I will curse. It's a message I'm working on right now, Charlie, so thanks for that good reminder. Boy, how, how this is so current and fits into that. Story number two, Iran has announced that it will resume nuclear negotiations with the West. 
And President Biden has said that the U.S. is also prepared to return to full compliance with the treaty. Does this mean the crisis could soon be resolved and the nuclear threat posed by Iran eliminated? Sadly, I don't think so. First, even though both sides have said nuclear talks will resume, they didn't set a specific date. And if they do meet, it doesn't mean an agreement will be reached. And even if they come to an agreement, it's unclear if Iran can be trusted to comply. You know, they've been caught cheating in the past. In fact, they may have deliberately damaged cameras set up by the International Atomic Energy Agency to monitor their production of nuclear material. Those cameras were offline for months, which some believe Iran used at that time to increase its enrichment of uranium. President Biden is anxious to score a political win by re-implementing the nuclear accord with Iran, but it's unclear if he'll demand more transparency from them or demand that they curtail missile development and support for terrorism. The worst possible outcome would be lifting all economic sanctions against Iran with nothing more than promises that they'll return to compliance on the agreement. You know, it's really a dangerous time politically because Iran senses the leadership in the U.S. is not as forceful or decisive as it's been in the past. Uh, They were less likely to cheat if they genuinely sensed there would be political, economic, or military consequences. Now, Israel is concerned. They want the West to keep a close eye on Iran. Uh, They're also threatening to take whatever steps they think might be necessary to keep Iran from getting the bomb. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger with a look at current events from the Middle East. Charlie Dyer is there right now on the Golan Heights. Story number three, political problems continue to mount for the Palestinian Authority. They appear to have lost control over the city of Hebron. And a recent poll found that nearly 80% of Palestinians want Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas to resign. Charlie, what's behind all this discontent? Well, you know, part of the problem is the reality that Abbas has now been in power 16 years. That's 12 years beyond the end of his four-year term. Uh, When Abbas went back on his pledge to finally hold elections back in January, many feel he did so because he knew he would lose. Uh, The Palestinian Authority, his government, is also notoriously corrupt, with leaders at all levels skimming off funds that ought to be going to help the poor and the needy. Hamas is more popular among Palestinians than Abbas and the Fatah party, and that popularity skyrocketed during their conflict with Israel in May. Palestinians see Hamas as being willing to stand up against Israel, while the Palestinian Authority remains silent. However, Hamas's popularity has waned since then. Now, only 45% of the population in this recent poll say Hamas ought to be given a chance to lead the Palestinians. But that's still way above the 19% who say Abbas and Fatah ought to remain in power. Most telling of all, perhaps, John, is the fact that 28% said neither side deserves to be in charge. Wow. The decline for the support in these larger parties seems to be producing a rise in factionalism like that now being seen in Hebron. A senior Fatah official in Hebron threatened to use force to prevent the Palestinian Authority officials from entering the city. Uh, The threat was made during a meeting of several clans in the city who had gathered to discuss the increase in violence and anarchy there. Uh, Some of these family clans have thousands of members. They also have their own legal system and even their own security forces. Uh, The Palestinian Authority Prime Minister did eventually travel to Hebron, and he's ordered a crackdown on criminals and illegal weapons, but only time will tell if his tough talk will translate into safer streets. You know, if the Palestinian Authority can't regain control... Hebron could become a template for other cities and towns where loyalty to clans could replace loyalty to the government. 
And that could lead to a modern version of the book of Judges, you know, where there's no king in Israel, no authority. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And sadly, it seems like that's where these Palestinian cities are heading. Well, GPS has become such a part of our lives that it's hard to imagine driving somewhere without using our smartphone to help us navigate. But a new startup company in Israel hopes to bring GPS into your local grocery store. Charlie, how does this latest innovation from Amazing Israel actually work? Does it mean I'll finally be able to find those baking supplies a whole lot easier? Well, that's the hope behind this system. Uh, The technology is fascinating. The Israeli startup is called Orient, with two eyes in the middle, and their system is based on the fact that the steel and iron infrastructure in a building creates its own unique magnetic topography. Now, outdoors, the magnetic field is generally constant, which is why our compass always points north. But inside a building, the infrastructure creates slight distortions to that magnetic field. A magnetometer, which is in almost every smartphone now, can sense those differences. Orient is using those subtle differences to develop an interior magnetic map of buildings and then using that information to produce the equivalent of an indoor GPS map. Uh, The most logical place to start is obviously grocery stores. In fact, uh, that's where the head of the company got his idea. He was wandering around a store trying to find an item and had to finally give up. And he realized, well, other shoppers are leaving without buying purchases as well, and uh, that provides an opportunity. So after mapping a store, this software they've developed, then identifies the specific place in each aisle where products are shelved. Uh, The shopper enters a grocery list into the application. The application maps out the most efficient route through the store to find each item. Uh, Now, the part where I'm a little less enthusiastic is where they're going to also use this system to influence shopping choices. For example, they say they could offer a coupon as you pass by an item on a shelf. Now, the company signed deals with some major chains. It's in negotiations with other large retailers in the U.S. and Europe. But as the founder notes, 20 years ago, GPS was only used by the military. Today, it's used by nearly everyone. And if he has his way, you'll soon be using your smartphone to shop inside the store more than you now use it to find the store in the first place. Well, for most of us uh, shoppers, it can't come soon enough. Thanks for that report, Charlie. We'll look forward to your devotional later on. We're also looking forward to answering questions. Those are coming up. But first, finding Jesus in the Old Testament, what Messianic prophecies are really all about on The Land and the Book. Only the Messiah could pay for our sins. Only the Messiah could die in our place. Only the Messiah could restore our relationship with God and guarantee us heaven. So doesn't it make sense that his coming would be on hearts and minds for centuries? And doesn't it make sense that the clues of his arrival would be splashed across the pages of the Old Testament? Of course it does. So let's explore some of those messianic prophecies next. Hey, welcome again to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, always glad for your company. Hey, let's pause now for this thought on how you and I can be more intentional in sharing the love of Messiah Jesus with our Jewish friends. So you and your Jewish friend are having a great time having serious conversations, and Yeshua is somebody you want them to get to know. Where do we see him in the Old Testament? That's certainly ground that we can cover uh, in any friendship with a Jewish person. Michael Radelnik takes us to a favorite psalm. Yeah, it's one that the Lord Jesus used to point out his own deity. It's uh, Psalm 110. 
And uh, it says, this is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord, or the Lord God said to my Lord. Who is David's Lord? It's the Messiah. Mm. And uh, it then goes on to say in verse 4, you are a priest forever after the manner of Melchizedek. So here in this royal psalm, it's depicting the Messiah who's coming, and he is a king, but Mm. then also he's an eternal priest, just like Melchizedek. Why like Melchizedek? Because Melchizedek was a king priest. He united the office of king and priest. And so the Messiah too, he would not only be our king when he comes as Jesus is, but also he's our priest who represents us to God. You can dig deeper into many of these revelations of Messiah in the Old Testament as you check out the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy. Thanks, Michael. Appreciate your time. Always my pleasure. John Black is a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary served as senior pastor in Maine and currently serves as assistant professor of biblical studies and field director of IBEX, an academic program of the Masters University. In addition, he occasionally preaches and serves on the leadership team of the Young Adult Fellowship in his local congregation. He lives in Israel with his wife, Dorothy, a German national and licensed Israeli tour guide, and they've got two young children. Shalom, John. Nice to join you today from Israel. Shalom. Good morning. All right. Hey, how familiar do you think most believers are with the idea of messianic prophecies? I mean, you're a college professor, so what grade would you give the church of our day if you had to? Uh, I think that there's a very large majority of believers who understand that there are prophecies related to the Messiah, but I think that they're familiar with the idea that there are prophecies related to the Messiah. So what got you excited about Messianic prophecies? Was there a particular experience that you can point to, or what? Uh, I think it really has to do with the time period prior to entering seminary, which was around the year 2004. And one of the gaps in my knowledge at that time, in terms of my biblical awareness, which relates to your first question, is the prophets. Who were the prophets? Where did they live? What did they do? So I was very interested and intentional about pursuing more training at Dallas Theological Seminary in the field of the prophets. Hmm. You're listening to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, joined by John Black from Israel, and together we're about to explore some messianic prophecies. Let's keep things basic as we begin. Take us to a fairly obvious reference to Messiah in the Old Testament. What, what text would uh, come to your mind, John? Okay, I, I think um, a good text would be in the prophet Isaiah and chapter 9, uh, verses 1 to 7, uh, reads this way. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. 
For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. It's quite a passage. Uh, give us some insights here to uh, help us see Jesus. Okay. Um, I think the first thing that kind of jumps out here in terms of the Messiah himself is um, in verse 6, where it talks about a child will be born to us. So that tells us that this is a human being who is, will be born of a woman. Yeah. And he will be male. He will be a son that's given to us. So I think to see this future individual who will enter this planet Earth like all of us have as a baby, as a young son born to a woman, I think that's a very key insight to understand about the Messiah, that he's human and therefore he will be able to identify with his creatures, with all of humanity. And yet there's a whole lot more in that that text as well. I mean, if a, a son has been born... How can he also be called Mighty God? I think that's when we get into the heart of this being a messianic prophecy. That's right. So there is uh, um, the other component that you are highlighting is there are references here to things that humans are not and humans could never do. So uh, continuing down through verse 6, the government will rest on his shoulders. So this is an individual who is a ruler. Uh, he, he is a king. Uh, and then we have those four titles. Wonderful Counselor, the one that you pointed out, Mighty God, mm-hmm. Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. So uh, the, the word for God in Hebrew there is a very common one for God, Elohim. Um, and Eternal Father, that's interesting that the Messiah is also called Father, for for we as Christians who understand the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, uh, that's also a little bit uh, perplexing. We need to understand, well, what does that mean? So the God part there is helping us understand that he's more than human, that he's also uh, God himself. And I, I think the title there, Father, with the adjective before eternal, tells us of his preexistence, that yes. this child who will be born a human existed before time, before creation. Um, And the word father there tells us of relationship. It indicates to us uh, the relationship that this Messiah has with humanity. It is as intimate as a father is with his children. Messianic Prophecies. That's our focus today on The Land and the Book. We're on the phone with John Black, who joins us from Israel. John is Assistant Professor of Biblical Studies and Field Director of IBEX, an academic program of the Master's University. What do you think keeps us from being better informed, better aware of Messianic Prophecies, John? I think a lot of us struggle. Um, I think you're touching on an even larger topic, and that is our Christian's comfort level with the Old Testament. And um, I think the only time in a calendar year that I've heard sermons 
out of messianic prophecies from the prophetic text is usually around Christmas, the Advent calendar, maybe the three or four weeks leading up to the celebration of the birth of the Messiah. But many times through the year, I don't hear sermons in the United States context. I don't hear sermons on Messianic prophecy. Here, I hear a lot of them in Israel. Hmm. But I think in the States, it's maybe there's a lack of emphasis on the Old Testament generally, let alone Messianic texts in the prophetic literature. I think related to that is it's the type of um, literature that it is. It's usually poetic in nature. And even in English, I have a difficult time understanding poetry, let alone Hebrew poetry that comes from out of a, a Semitic type of thinking. So I think there's challenges presented to teachers, pastors, people who study the Bible to try to gain access to the material because it's difficult. It's difficult for our 21st century Western non-Semitic way of thinking to really mine the text well. Mm-hmm. I want to take us to Psalm 16. Uh, one of the difficulties I struggle with is reading a messianic psalm that seems to be talking in a general sense to regular folks like me, but then it switches all of a sudden to speaking very specifically about Messiah. And my question is, how do I know when to make the switch? And why is this so confusing to me? For example, Psalm 16, you know, keep me safe, O God, you know, for I take refuge in you. Okay, I don't see that being a prayer of Jesus. I see that being a prayer of a regular guy like me. And yet you go down to verse 10, the verse is, you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. So we switch gears there somewhere, and I feel like like a a 10-speed bike with a derailleur that kind of got jammed up. I'm not quite sure... Where, where to make that switch, and I'm, I'm a little confused. Help me understand this, this uh, switching back and forth. So uh, just for clarity, switching from a text that's written by an, a human author for that human author, yes. and then the same author writing, speaking, and it seems like it's referring not to that author. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I think um, sometimes, this isn't true of every Messianic text, but Certainly, sometimes there are texts where there is some type of reality for that writer. That writer is inspired by their, certainly by the Spirit of God, but I kind of mean inspired in a different way, by their historical, contextual experience. For example, David on the run from his enemies, the enemy of Saul or other enemies, uh, the Philistines, for example, and him crying out to God can also be rooted in his experience, which is an authentic text for him or or feeling for him, but also could be looking forward, maybe not from the human author's standpoint, but from the divine author's standpoint, looking forward to the cry of the Messiah on the cross, for instance. So I think that there can be a couple different ways to understand those. Maybe that's not 100% of a switch, to a reference to the Messiah, to Jesus. Does that help you? Yeah. Does that help a little bit? What's another favorite Messianic prophecy for you, a favorite of yours personally? I I would say a very famous passage because of its looking forward to the work of the Messiah on the cross. And that's Isaiah 52, the last three verses of 52, and then all of chapter 53. 
If we really give these messianic prophecies their proper role and respect, what do you think that will do for our love of Messiah and our understanding of Scripture? Yeah, I I truly believe that as we study and reflect in the Old Testament, particularly in as much of a chronological manner as possible, so starting, of course, with Genesis 3.15 and, and the seed of the woman being promised by God to defeat the seed of the serpent, and putting all of these messianic puzzle pieces, I'm borrowing from Professor Daryl Bach at Dallas Seminary, the imagery of a puzzle, mm-hmm. where each piece of that puzzle is, is a messianic text, or giving us little nuggets of information about either the identity of the Messiah or the work of the Messiah. As we put these puzzle pieces together, beginning in Genesis through Malachi, it will give us a more robust understanding Mm -hmm. of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. What study tips or tools do you recommend for listeners who want to explore Messianic prophecies a bit further? I think a very good place to start, in addition to the Bible, as you're partnering with the Bible, is a book called The Messiah in the Old Testament. The author is Walter Kaiser. I think it's a very well-written book Mm -hmm. to help untangle the more difficult Messianic text. That's a great tool. And John, our time is gone, but we want to thank you for giving us some insights into Messianic prophecies. A bit more about John is at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Coming up, though, a fresh set of Bible questions. Maybe yours is one of them. Charlie Dyer is ready to give some answers. You don't want to miss it. It's next on The Land and the Book. It's The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger. Here we are, segment three, with our host, Charlie Dyer, ready to plow into a fresh set of Bible questions, questions about prophecy in the Middle East. Charlie's Bible is open, so Charlie, let's dig in. What do you say? I'm ready, John. Here we go. Here's Troy's question. He says, I'm enjoying your program as I write this email, and I have a question concerning the Jewish people and their ongoing expectation of the Messiah. What are the Jews actually expecting when the Messiah comes? And what percentage of present-day Jews would you say are actually looking for the Messiah? During the tribulation, other than the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, will there be other Jewish believers? Yeah, several questions there, and I'll start by saying it really is hard to pigeonhole Jewish perspectives on the Messiah. Many secular Jews have little time for religion and likely don't believe in a promised Messiah. However, I assume most religious Jews, that's about 20% of the population, do look forward to the promised Messiah, and most see him as the combination of a great spiritual leader and someone who's going to usher in the promised era of world peace and tranquility. Uh, Some also see him, I think, as a government or military leader who will enforce peace between nations, and sadly, I think that perspective might cause some to welcome ultimately the Antichrist as a promised man of peace, though I'm not sure they'll see him as the Messiah. However, Jesus did say in the end times when they begin, many will come along claiming to be the Messiah. Uh, We know the 144,000 will be called by God as worldwide evangelists, really, during the end times. I also believe the Bible teaches that many other Jews will come to faith during the tribulation period. Uh, I say that because Zechariah 12.10 says, God's going to pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication 
So they'll look on me whom they've pierced and mourn as one mourns for an only son. Now that suggests the period will be a time when spiritual blindness will be lifted and many Jewish people will come to understand who their Messiah really is. Kristen writes, I loved your recent podcast about biblical Greek. I was wondering, is there also going to be one on biblical Hebrew? Well, let me answer that for you, Kristen. Yes, we're working on it. (laughs) She goes on to say, Charlie, I'd love to know more about biblical Hebrew versus modern Hebrew. Is pronunciation the main difference? Are all the biblical Hebrew words incorporated into modern Hebrew with the creators of modern Hebrew adding words that weren't in the biblical text? Thanks for your help. Yeah, oh, a modern Hebrew was resurrected by a guy named Eliezer ben Yehuda, and those who go to Israel can spend some time on Ben Yehuda Street, named after him. Uh, he was born in 1858. He came to what was then Palestine in 1881, and his dream was to transform Hebrew into a modern language. He settled in Jerusalem, and he dedicated his life to making Hebrew the language of the Jewish people. Now, the other parts of your question, many of the words in grammar in modern Hebrew do come from the Bible. Other words have entered the vocabulary. In fact, I love being able to see things like telephone or bank transliterated in Hebrew. Uh, Now, some words have changed over time, and the pronunciation has also modified in some cases. But the language itself would be at least vaguely recognizable to someone from biblical times, though it might be similar to having someone, say, from Shakespeare's period uh, return and listen to a modern teenager speaking English. You know, changes in vocabulary, grammar, abbreviations, other things like that in the modern language would be rather jarring to our visitor from the past. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Charlie Dyer, our host, is answering questions that have come in via email. And uh, yours is always welcome at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Fred says, I listen to The Land and the Book podcast on my iPhone from the tiny island nation of Singapore and have been much blessed. It's cool to hear where these people are listening. And uh, he says, I always look forward to that podcast, every segment much anticipated. There's a passage, though, that I'm confused about. Is the woman mentioned in Mark 14, verse 3, the same Mary as mentioned in John 12, verse 3? If this is true, then how is Simon the leper related to Martha, Mary, and Lazarus? Yeah, and I got to start by saying, uh, for those who don't know off the top of their head those passages, uh, both Mark 14 and John 12 record the instance of uh, Jesus being anointed uh, the week before his uh, trial and crucifixion uh, with the woman in, uh, breaking the uh, jar of perfume. Now, as far as we know, Simon the leper, though, isn't necessarily related to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So the only connection is they lived in the village of Bethany on the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives, and they were all present at this event. Uh, Mark actually doesn't identify Mary by name in his account, but John does uh, in John 12. And I believe those both accounts there are describing the same event. Uh, Mark notes that Mary poured the flask of oil or perfume, actually, on Jesus's head, while John records that she poured it on his feet. And I think that can be harmonized by assuming that she poured a portion of the bottle on Jesus's head and the remainder on his feet. Since he was reclining at a table at the time, that wouldn't be a problem. But now back to the main question. We, we don't know if Simon is related to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, though they did come from the same village and were together at the same banquet where Mary poured out the perfume. But beyond that, the Bible's silent. Thanks, Charlie. Let's go on to Jean's question. She takes us to Acts 8, verse 16. The believers of Samaria had not received the Holy Spirit because they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Why didn't they receive the Holy Spirit when they were baptized in Jesus' name? 
it's important to remember that in the book of Acts, uh, we're actually seeing a transitional period, you know, God shifting his program from Israel to the church. Prior to that transition, Jesus had told Peter that he would play a special role in the advance of this new message. He said, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's Matthew 16. Well, Acts 1.8 gives us the geographical outline for the book of Acts. Uh, You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, Peter preached to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, and that's when the Holy Spirit was first poured out in Acts 2. Acts 8, this passage, then connects that event, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, to the spread of the gospel to Samaria. And two chapters later, Acts 10 connects the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles with the conversion of the Roman centurion Cornelius. Now, in each case, it was Peter who was present when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the next group. Uh, It's important to Jewish believers back then because it showed them that God's program was expanding beyond Israel to ultimately incorporate the entire world. Now, that seems obvious to us today, but it was a new concept to the people in that day. And, And that's why I believe God used Peter to open the door, so to speak, to the expansion of the gospel through the visible outpouring of the Holy Spirit on each group. Now, once each group entered into that program, Peter didn't need to be present, and of course, the people then received the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. Brian says, I catch your program on 103.3 FM, WCRF Cleveland. Nice to have him listening. He takes us to the Gospels where Jesus said that the birds of the air have nests and foxes have holes in the ground, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What did he mean by this? Didn't he live with his earthly parents, Joseph and Mary? Perhaps he was referring only to his three years of public ministry or simply using hyperbole. Your thoughts? Yeah, and the phrase is found in in both Matthew 8 and Luke 9, and in both cases, it's in a section where there are individuals who want to follow Jesus but have less than proper motives. So let me deal with the account in Matthew here. The first individual was a teacher of the law or, or a scribe, and he said, I'll follow you wherever you go, but he addressed Jesus as teacher, which in Matthew's gospel is a title that seems to be only used by those who don't fully believe in Jesus. It's used by the Pharisees who demand a sign from him, the rich young man who wanted to know what he had to do to get eternal life, and the Pharisees and Herodians and Sadducees when they tried to trap Jesus with questions. So it tells me the individual was maybe a casual follower, if that. Uh, Perhaps his motive was to attach himself to Jesus in the hope of material gain, you know, hitching his wagon to a star, or perhaps he was simply young and naive and overzealous. But The way he addresses Jesus and the nature of his question suggests he really doesn't understand what's involved in being a true disciple of Jesus. And I think that's needed to understand Jesus's response. Uh, Jesus can't be saying he never had a place to lay his head because, well, he did when he was growing up. And even in Capernaum, he stayed in Peter's house. So in light of that, I think what he's saying to the individual is that any expectation of earthly rewards or comforts, like a permanent home, weren't going to be the lot for him or his followers. In fact, in the verse just before this individual's request, Jesus had given orders to leave Capernaum and the comfort of Peter's house to cross to the other side of the lake. He was an itinerant minister, and as such, he had no permanent home. Whether it was Peter's house or that of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and Bethany, or wherever it was, he was dependent on the kindness and hospitality of others, even for a place to lay down for the night. And that's what I think he meant when he said he had no place to lay his head. That is, he had no permanent place of his own to lay his head. 
Russell says on a recent broadcast, you referred to Paul saying that Satan and God would provide some sort of a delusion about what will happen to people after the rapture. What verses were you referencing? Yeah, I was actually talking about 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In terms of Satan's part in that deception, Paul says uh, the coming of the lawless one will be in accord with the works of Satan, displaying all kinds of counterfeit miracles. But then in verse 11, he describes God's process. He says, for this reason, God will send a powerful delusion so that they'll believe a lie. Have you checked out our podcast yet? It's waiting for you at our website, thelandandthebook.org. A great way to listen to the program when you want, wherever you like, thelandandthebook.org. Charlie's devotional is next on The Land and the Book. Compromise. It can be a good thing. It can be a bad thing. Charlie Dyer has some perspectives from the book of Revelation in his devotional coming up here on The Land and the Book. Welcome back. I'm John Kaker. And before we let Charlie have a shot at Revelation, we wanted a a listener who's been to the Holy Land to share from their own perspective how their lives are now different having gone to Israel. Listen to this Holy Land experience. I've been blessed to be on my second tour with Charlie Dyer. And I think um, the experience at En Gedi was very meaningful to me. How David found Saul indisposed and had the opportunity to take his life. And yet he recognized and acknowledged that Saul was God's anointed one for a purpose. And he acted righteously and did not slay him when he had the opportunity. And it was a great lesson because Charlie shared how we respond to treatment, ill treatment from others, is a key on our walk with Christ. And that was very meaningful to me. Well, Charlie, compromise can be a good thing, but if we compromise with the world, maybe not. Your thoughts? Yeah, that's exactly right, John. And that's why Jesus wrote his letter to the church at Pergamum. Uh, check your cabin to make sure you're not forgetting anything. Uh, This is where we leave the ship that's been our home for these past few weeks and head toward Pergamum, the third city in our journey through Revelation 2 and 3. Ancient Pergamum rose to prominence when one of four generals who carved up Alexander the Great's empire chose it as his capital. Pergamum rivaled Ephesus in commerce and exceeded it in art and culture. It's the city that invented parchment, after Egypt cut off the supply of papyrus because its library was rivaling the one in Alexandria. Our destination today is the Acropolis that towers a thousand feet over the modern city of Bergama. From these lofty heights, we can catch a glimpse of the true political and religious significance of this city. The magnificent ruins of Trajan's temple remind us of the city's unique connection to Rome. The last independent ruler of Pergamum had no heirs. And so at his death, he bequeathed his kingdom to Rome. And as a result, Pergamum became the most Roman of the cities in Western Asia Minor. In addition to its library and its love for Rome, the city was also known for its monumental altar to Zeus. Archaeologists dismantled the altar and carried it to Berlin, where it now rests in the Pergamum Museum. Ancient Pergamum was a city of art, culture, and medicine a city that enjoyed a close relationship to Rome, a city that led the way in its acceptance of and worship of the emperors in Rome, a city known for its magnificent temples. Now, 
Imagine what it was like to be a follower of Christ in such a city. The pressure to conform was enormous, and the penalties for not doing so were severe. It was a matter of civic pride to be the leading city in the worship of the emperor. To not follow along was unpatriotic at the very least, and possibly seditious. To be such a nonconformist could impact your social standing, your job, your prospects for marriage, and even your very life. Nobody likes a traitor. And maybe that's why some in the church at Pergamum developed what they thought was a unique way to handle the problem. Conceal your Christianity on the inside. Continue following the outward religious practices expected of Pergamum citizens and make your loyalty to Jesus something practiced behind closed doors. You could almost hear the wheels turning as they thought through the concept. Yeah, we can be God's undercover agents sent to infiltrate the people of Pergamum from the inside. We might bow the knee and burn some incense, but in our hearts we'll know our knee is really bowed to Jesus. The plan might have looked good on paper, but it resulted in a letter of rebuke from Jesus himself. In his letter to this church, Jesus acknowledged the difficult political and religious circumstances they faced. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And Jesus commended them for holding fast to his name and not denying his faith, even during a time of persecution and martyrdom they had recently experienced. But then Jesus singled out those in the church who were promoting their program of covert Christianity. And he used two illustrations to show it wasn't a new plan at all. In fact, it was nothing more than the old sin of compromise dressed in some new clothing. You have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. Thus, you also have some who, in the same way, hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The new idea being suggested in Pergamum was as old as the teaching of Balaam during the time of the Exodus. Jesus expects us to know the story in the book of Numbers, how Balaam had been summoned to curse God's people, but had been unable to do so. Then he offered a suggestion. Forget trying to confront God's people directly. Instead, get in bed with them, so to speak. Entice them sexually and use their own lust to get them to turn away from God. Then God himself will curse them for you. Follow carefully the point Jesus is making. These leaders, by suggesting someone could follow Jesus while still continuing to participate in pagan practices, were repeating the evil counsel of Balaam. God can't bless someone who claims to follow him, but who continues to live in idolatry or sexual immorality. Just as Israel fell under God's wrath when they tried to do these things, so the believers in Pergamum would find themselves under God's judgment if they participated in the idolatry and immorality being practiced in the city. Jesus also mentioned the teaching of the Nicolaitans. As some trace this back to Nicholas of Antioch, one of the seven deacons chosen in Acts 6, though there's no historical basis for making that connection. But we do know what this teaching was. It was a form of dualism that said the body is corrupt while the spirit is pure. It also taught that whatever people do physically doesn't impact their spiritual essence. Some even tried to prove this by living as debauched a physical life as possible. In essence, this teaching encouraged someone to be immoral, to show how much of an impact God's grace can make on our inner being. 
whether it was the teaching of Balaam or that of the Nicolaitans, the message was essentially the same. Your Christian life consists in what you are on the inside, regardless of how you live. And since you live in a pagan, immoral society, why cause problems for yourself by trying to live by a different standard? Blend in. Fit in. Surrender to your surroundings. It won't impact your relationship to God. Or so they thought. Jesus minces no words on how he feels about such teaching. Those living this way need to repent of their actions. And if they refuse to do so, they will discover that Jesus has a sharp, two-edged sword that he will use to make war against those who have turned to idolatry or immorality. As we walk off the Acropolis to head to our next destination, think about these words of Jesus. They still ring true in our culture, which, in many ways, resembles that of ancient Pergamum. The pressure on us to accept and conform to a do-your-own-thing lifestyle is unrelenting. Everyone stresses the rights you have or the freedom you should demand. But little is said about God's absolute standards of right and wrong and his expectation that his followers are to live by those standards. Many want a cuddly, warm, feel-good Jesus, and they're very uncomfortable with a Jesus wielding a sword of truth. But Jesus' letter to the church at Pergamum reminds us that he expects our lives to conform to God's word, not to culture. Well, that's well said, Charlie. And even if it makes us uncomfortable, this idea of Jesus wielding a sword of truth, it's the real thing. Let me ask you, is your relationship with God the real thing? Have you ever been forgiven by God, ever asked him to take charge of your life, to have Jesus be, the Bible word is Savior? It means in charge instead of you. We all want to be in charge, right? But with Jesus in charge, your life is all different, forever different, and forever headed for heaven. If you'd like the certainty of knowing that you're forgiven, the certainty of knowing that you're headed for heaven, it begins with a simple prayer. Just pray with me if this is what you'd like. Lord, I believe you died on the cross to pay for my wrongdoing. The Bible word is sin, and I'm asking you to give me a clean slate, Jesus. And please be my Savior from this day onward. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, what happens next is not a, a problem-free life, I should point out. <laughs> the bills are still there. The pesky relatives are still there. The job you hate, yeah, that's still there too. But with Jesus in charge, Jesus in the center, you're going to see it all become different. Wait for that. It's going to happen. And if you'd like to have a conversation with somebody about this business of knowing Jesus, Talk to a volunteer now at 888-NEED-HIM, 888-NEED-HIM. There's no cost or obligation at 888-NEED-HIM. I'm John Gager. Thanks for listening today to The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.